0: On Saturday, I had a brief conversation with my youngest, who has just finished his first week of college classes, so I was getting the rundown on what his first week was like and just talking about kind of what he was doing, what his experience was like, some of the choices he's making, some of the friendships he's building, and just having a regular old conversation about his life, and all of a sudden, it was like I hit this invisible emotional wall, and I couldn't say anything, like I could not verbalize a word and there was this pause and he says dad are you okay and I and I get words out in this shaky voice and I said yeah I'm fine I'm just crying and I was just crying he's like dad what's going on I'm like I don't know I just love you you know and uh, I just it's one of those moments where you feel like you see a bigger picture of someone's life than they can actually see in the moment. And, you know, as a dad, I felt like I could see this bigger picture of his life and I'm just sitting there thinking, man, he can make it. He can, he can become who God created him to be. Like, I think he can do it, and I wish he could feel what I feel right now and know that he can be who God created him to be. And it, it's that way with your kids a lot of times, or maybe somebody that you've invested in, maybe a friend or a family member or a neighbor, and you just feel like, man, I can see something that the Lord is doing here, and I just want them to know they can do it. They can make it because God is faithful. And he's going to come through for them. It's one of those moments as a parent where you, where you visualize in your mind's eye that that very first step that they took that very first pedal of a bicycle that stroke of a swim and you see this bigger picture of life and you're like you can do it. I think God's like that with us like I think he looks at us as his children. And those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, He's looking at us and He's saying, I've seen every step along the way, and I want you to know you can take the very next step. You can do it. You can become who I created you to be. I'm for you. And you can do this. So here's what I want us to do today. As we read through Joshua chapter 15, 16, and 17, I want us to consider the question, What is my next step of faith? What's my next step? What is the next step that God wants me to take? What is it that He believes I can do? I I can remember back on my life, significant moments in gatherings just like this as a church family, where in the moment God so spoke to me through the activities of a church family and corporate worship that I knew I had to take a next step of faith. Knew, and I tried the best that I could to take that step and I'm here to tell you a lot of those steps along the way from the vantage point of perfection were far from being perfect But I tried to take those next steps. You know what I found? I found a Heavenly Father who's made provision for me through His Son, Jesus Christ, dispensing to me His Holy Spirit, that takes my imperfect steps and turns it into something absolutely amazing. And I can see through my lifetime moments just like this where I took what in the moment felt like just a next step that happened to turn out to be one of the most significant decisions of my life. And I just want to encourage you today. God has a next step for every one of us. And it just might be the most significant decision you've ever made. So ask the question, what is the next step for me? All right, let's read Joshua chapter 15. We're going to start in 15. We're going to read parts of 15, 16, 17. There are sections of this story we're not going to read because they're heavy in details related to cities, cities, borders territories and allotments and for those who were getting the inheritance hearing the details would have been incredible for us not so much and so we're gonna we're gonna kind of jump over those details and hit some of the highlights that carry the significant story that's found in the details so we're not going to read all the details, but it's not because you shouldn't read them. I want you to read them, but I want to hit the highlights that carry through this story, this, this large passage of Scripture. So when you read the details, I want you to read them like the person who would be receiving the land. And recognize that the details for that person mattered greatly. I mean, just think about if you were in a position where you were going to receive some land. Let's say you were going to receive two acres of land, just hypothetically, and You were in that position to receive that land, and you heard that land described to you. It's two acres. It's beautiful. It's got century oaks in perfect positions for future development. It's got groves of tree that provide just the right shade. You can just imagine a walkway through that shade that would create a wonderful experience for you. You see the grade of that land going from west to east across that two acres, and you can see the south boundary of that land. It's it's an amazing brand-new Wolf Ranch Parkway. It's fantastic. You know that the the west side boundary of that land is an increasingly significant thoroughfare of D.B. Wood. You know that the north and and the east side of that boundary is the fabulous and absolutely incredible campus of FBG. And you can see that two acres. And it means something to you. See, the, the meaning is there when the land matters. So don't miss the details from the perspective of the land but we're going to focus in on the story that comes out of the details all right so chapter 15 verse 1 now the allotment for the tribe of the descendants of judah by their clans was in the southernmost region south to the wilderness of zen and over to the border of edom so we're dealing with judah first remember in chapter 14 Judah's at the front of the line and Caleb comes to the front of the line and says, I want my allotment. And we saw last week in Joshua 14 this amazing display of Caleb's life and his trust in the Lord. It's like, man, we want to be like Caleb. And we come full circle to another excerpt about Caleb here in chapter 15. So drop down to verse 13. You're going to see some description about Caleb. Now, before before we read chapter 15, verse 13, I want to point out a little detail in verse 7. If you you look up at verse 7, it says, Then the border ascended to Debir from the valley of Acre. Now, that's a detail that helps carry some story for us. Because the valley of Acre was established in Joshua chapter 7. You remember in Joshua chapter 7 when Achan and his family disregard the clear instruction of the Lord and God's, family, God's judgment falls on that family and they pile up a pile of rocks right there where God's judgment fell on that family and those, those rocks are left as a memorial as if to say to every passerby from this day forward, God will keep his promise of judgment if you disregard who he is and what he says. the, the, The story of Achan happened right there at the valley of Acre. And it just brings to our mind the last time Judah was first in line. See, Achan came from the tribe of Judah. And back in Joshua 7, Judah was at the front of the line to receive the promise of God's judgment. But now in Joshua 15, Judah has come to the front of the line to receive God's blessing. Joshua 15 is a much better story. Much better story. But God keeps his promises of both judgment and blessing. We should consider that truth in light of a next step of faith. Now let's look at Caleb, verse 13. He gave Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the following portion among the descendants of Judah, based on the Lord's instruction to Joshua. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, Arba was the father of Anak. Caleb drove out from there three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahaman, Talmai, the descendants of Anak. From there he marched against the inhabitants of Debir, which used to be called kiriath And Caleb said, whoever attacks and captures Kiriath-sephir, I will give my daughter Asha to him as a wife. So Othniel, son of Caleb's brother, Kenaz, captured it, and Caleb gave his daughter Asha to him as a wife. When she arrived, she persuaded Othniel to ask her father for a field. As she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? And she replied, Give me a blessing. Since you've given me land in the Negev, give me the springs also. And so he gave her the upper and lower springs. So again, we see in Caleb's life. Now, let's make sure we understand the context. Caleb has stepped forward to receive his allotment. God gives him the land that belongs to him. It's his. The enemy in the land has been defeated such that the enemy cannot overturn what God is doing. But Caleb has not yet possessed all the land and displaced all the enemy. So he's got work to do. And so what we're reading about is that Caleb trusts the Lord. And he knows that even though the land has been given to him, there's still work to do. Some assembly required. And what we see about Caleb in the land where there's still work to do, Caleb is believing the Lord and nobody is standing in the front of Caleb and overcoming him because he fully trusts the Lord. And Caleb is going up against cities like Hebron, one of the most significant defended cities in the promised land. He's, He's taking care of business because he trusts the Lord and he's experiencing victory. You see that he is also inviting someone who is younger than him, the generation behind him, to have an opportunity to share in the battle for victory, to experience the significance of trusting the Lord and leading a victory. And he puts a lot of motivation out there for somebody younger to come along and share in the victory by saying, whoever comes along and shares in this, I'm going to give them my daughter as a wife. And this guy, Othniel, he steps up and he says, I want to share in victory. I want to follow the Lord. And I also would I kind of like your daughter. And so he's on board and he goes in there and they had this experience and Othniel wins. And now he is under the influence in the more significant way in Caleb's life. So Caleb offers him this opportunity to come alongside under his influence and experience victory through faith in the Lord. And then Joshua makes a long-term commitment to that young man's faithfulness because that young man is now Joshua's son-in-law. Then Joshua's daughter says, I want a blessing. I I don't know a son or daughter who has not longed for a blessing from mom and dad. And Caleb, as he trusts in the Lord with what God has given him, he takes from what God has given him and he gives generously to his daughter and he blesses her. He didn't just give her the land. He also gives her the springs. And he gives her a blessing. I'm just, I'm just really convinced that there's simply no greater blessing that you can give your children or your grandchildren than a part of the inheritance that you have received in the Lord himself by following him and walking with him. You can give of what you have received from the Lord. And there is no greater blessing your kids long for. And I, When I see Caleb in the life he's living in a land where the enemy is defeated, but is still dangerous, I see him making choices to walk in faith and victory, bringing others alongside and to share in that victory and being a blessing to those who are closest to him. I see somebody I want to be like. And once again, I'm saying, as I get old, I want to be like Caleb. You notice my change in words from last week. I think last week I said, when I get old. And I've decided I just need to accept reality. And I'm just going to say, you know, as I get old. And the truth is, what I'm discovering is nobody wants to admit that they're old. But the reality is we're all getting old, and we're all much older than we think we are. And we have far little less time than we think we have. And what we need to decide is as we get old, what do we want to do with the time we're given? And I, for one, want to be more like Caleb. I want to be more like you. Let's keep going we got a list of cities in Judah all the way through from verse 20 to verse 62. Now, one thing you'll notice when you begin to work through the rest of Joshua, all the descriptions of the cities, territories, and boundaries for every other tribe is shorter than the descriptions for Judah. That's not because the describer got weary in giving the details. It's because... We are intended to see Judah as prominent, more significant and important than any other tribe. It's it's a way for us to see this story unfolding as the allotments are given out. We might just see lists of cities and lands, but what we need to see is this is a different treatment for Judah than any other tribe. What's going on here? And what's going on is that when Jacob, Judah's dad, blessed Judah before Judah, Jacob died. Jacob said of Judah, Judah, all your siblings are going to bow down to you. Judah, you're like a lion. Judah, the scepter of the king, will not depart from your family. You see what Joshua is doing in describing what's happening here is putting front and center the prominence of Judah. There is no tribe like Judah and the reason is is because this whole thing is more than just about land. What this is really about is that one day a king is promised to come through the tribe of Judah and that king will change everything. We know he's Jesus Christ. And we know that every step of faith in the coming king changes everything about life. Don't miss the bigger story that's unfolding here. All right. Verse 63. But the descendants of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites Who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites still live in Jerusalem among the descendants of Judah today. All right, the Israelites come into the land, there's an enemy in the land, they displace and conquer and wipe out portions of the enemy, but they've not yet possessed all the land. And the Lord told them back in Exodus hey, this is a part of the plan. There's there's not going to be this fell swoop, one year, you get all the land. That's not how it's going to work. It's going to take time. It's going to be more like some assembly required. And this is by design. This is the way it's going to unfold. And so we know that's happening. They're in the land. They're taking the land. But then something here is described that sounds like, hey, maybe this is what the Lord designed. They can't get the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. So maybe this is what the Lord designed. Maybe this is a part of the time frame here of living in a land where there's an enemy who's defeated and subdued and yet still dangerous. All right, let's keep reading. Chapter 16, verse 1. The allotment for the descendants of Joseph went from the Jordan at Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east to the wilderness ascending from Jericho into the hill country of Bethel. Now we're dealing with the tribe of Joseph. So we've transitioned To the tribe of Joseph, and if you'll remember, the tribe of Joseph is actually two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. So Joseph's two kids became equal uh, siblings to Joseph's brothers, so that Joseph actually ends up with a double portion, and Ephraim and Manasseh are getting an allotment separately along with Joseph's brothers, even though Ephraim and Manasseh are Joseph's kids. See how that's unfolding? So when you hear about Joseph, you're hearing about two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now drop down, we're going to get the details again, but drop down to the description here in verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites still live in Ephraim today, but they are forced laborers. Okay, something else going on now. In chapter 15, we heard they could not. Well, maybe that's God's plan. Maybe it's just going to take time. In chapter 16, we hear that they could not and they did not. So, however, they did not drive out the Canaanites. And what they did instead is they made those people in the land servants that would benefit them. Okay, so God made it clear over here, you're going to drive them out. It may take you longer than you think it will because some assembly required is by design. And so they couldn't do it. Well, maybe that's a timing issue. And then you see this shift of, well, they they didn't do it. And instead of following God's plan, they've developed a new plan. Let's instead turn the people in the land to our servants so that we benefit from them staying in the land and our life is better. You can see them begin shifting. What I'm calling you, there seems to be a drift happening here. What's going on? Chapter 17. This is the allotment for the tribe of Manasseh. Joseph's firstborn, Gilead and Bashan, were given to Macker, the firstborn of Manasseh and the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war. Here we're given a little description of this guy, Machir, and on the east side of the Jordan this guy took care of business by trusting the Lord and leading them in battle and they got a victory again what we're just seeing here is a little contrast because all of Israel's starting to give indication of drifting away from their next step in faith and then Macca the man of war is giving us another contrast along with Joshua and Caleb hey you can do this you can take the next step In a land where the enemy still is there, though defeated and dangerous, you can take the next step. Look at verse 3. Now Hardname, son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Macher, son of Manasseh, had no sons, only daughters. These are the names of his daughter. Mahiah, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They came before the priest Eliezer, Joshua, son of Nun, and the leaders saying, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our male relatives. So they gave them an inheritance among their fathers, brothers, in keeping with the Lord's instruction. As a result, ten tracts fell to Manasseh beside the land of Gilead and Bashan, which are, are beyond the Jordan, because Manasseh's daughters received an inheritance among his sons. The land of Gilead belonged to the rest of Manasseh's sons. Okay, here the story is continuing to unfold so we can see what's happening in Israel. And this particular part of the story is echoing something that happened earlier in Israel's history when they're talking about allotments and how people are going to get land. The provision for the inheritance of land was given to the sons. Because the daughters would marry somebody else's sons and have land through marriage. Well, in this particular family, there were no sons. And so this family had no way to experience the inheritance of God. They would have been left out. And so they go to Moses and they appeal, we we don't want to be left out. And this amazing story unfolds where God communicates, I'm not doing what I'm doing to leave anybody out. My promises are for everybody. And he says to this family, though you have no sons, these girls will receive an inheritance. So this family who otherwise would have no inheritance will have an inheritance. You see that fleshed out right here. That's happening right here. There's another reason this story is highlighted here. If you, if you just think for a second, when five daughters get an inheritance that they otherwise should not have gotten, Manasseh's getting a whole lot more land than they would have gotten had God not done that. Okay, so Joseph was told you get a double portion. We're seeing Ephraim and Manasseh get land as separate tribes. And then we see Manasseh get a whole bunch more land. And if you just look at that map up there, you're going to see that Ephraim and Manasseh have a whole lot of land. They got a lot of stuff, right? Now that you have that in mind, let's keep moving forward. Verse 12. The descendants of Manasseh could not possess these cities because the Canaanites were determined to stay in the land. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they imposed forced labor on the Canaanites, but did not drive them out completely. right, you hear the progression? They could not. Then they did not, and they chose a different route. Then they could not, but when they could, they chose not to, and instead deliberately chose a route that is against the Lord. They chose the short-term benefit of disobedience over the short-term cost of obedience that would lead to long-term blessing. They couldn't. Then when they could, they didn't want to because they wanted something different than God wanted for them. Doesn't that sound a lot like the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve knew exactly what God wanted. And they decided that they didn't want what he wanted. The greatest threat when you live in a land where there is a defeated enemy is to believe that that enemy is no longer dangerous. Because if you believe that enemy is no longer dangerous in the land in which you live, then the greatest ploy and scheme of that enemy is to deceive you just enough, to convince you just enough that you begin to drift. And you say things like, I, I just couldn't read my Bible this week. Busy week. And you don't even realize that what you're saying is in contradiction to what the Lord said because you have an enemy coming alongside of you who is trying to twist the truth so you begin to say things that are not true. And you say things like, I just couldn't find time to pray. When in reality, that's not what God would say about you. What He would say about you is you can take the very next step of faith. You can do it. And the enemy comes along and begins to toy with us and work with us and we fail to recognize though the enemy is defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ and Satan has no power that God has not afforded him. Though we live in a life that is requiring some assembly. Though this enemy is not the equal foe of God. Though there's no way the enemy can take from us anything that God does not allow the enemy to take. Though the enemy is defeated, the enemy is dangerous and we must be on alert because the drift is real. The enemy wants us to get to the place where we would say, I could not and I did not because I tried something different. And he wants us to figure out in that situation that, hey, it's, it's not so bad having some forced laborers around making my life better. And then all of a sudden, you say things like, I could not. And when I could, I just didn't want to anymore. Because I actually like my sin over God's righteousness. And then you drift even further beyond what you ever imagined. It all just began living in a land where an enemy exists who's defeated but still dangerous and you gave no heed to him. And you just started saying things like, I couldn't do it. We can't afford to drift. Look look at what... Joseph's descendants say to Joshua in verse 14 why did you give us only one tribal allotment as an inheritance we have many people because the Lord has blessed us greatly do you hear what they're saying God gave them the allotment they were supposed to have God told them it was a double portion what did they just say why did you just give us one allotment hold on Who's dishing out the allotments and who's doing the counting? God has blessed us. We we need more. Did you see the picture? Did you hear about Manasseh? Did you hear about double portion? And here they are, and they've drifted. I could not, then I could, and I did not, and I chose a different route. And now they're saying, what you've done for me, not good enough. What you promised to give me, it wasn't what you said it was. What you said you'd do for me, you didn't do it. And I want you to make it right. You see this drift? And look, look what Joshua says, verse 15. He says, if you have so many people, go to the forest and clear an area for yourselves. There's land in the Perizzites and the Rephine. Refi- Because Ephraim's hill country is too small for you, just go and do it. But here's what they say look at verse 16. But the descendants of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who inhabit the valley area have iron chariots. Are you kidding me? Both at Baal Sheen with its surrounding villages and in the Jezreel valley. They say, Wait a minute. Even what you're offering us, that's still not good enough. In fact, it's way too hard. It should be easier than this. They got iron chariots. We don't want to do God's way anymore. We want it like we want it. We like it like we described it. We don't care what God said he would do. We want him to do what we say he should do. You see the drift? I couldn't do it. I didn't do it. I couldn't do it. I could have, and I chose not to. And now i drifted, drifted so far that I am my own God. I'm calling the shots. And I don't care about what God says anymore. You, you don't ever think you're going to end up here. But in a land where the enemy is defeated but still dangerous, his greatest tactic is to deceive you right here because if you begin to drift you can end up here before you know it we cannot afford to drift and we don't have to we don't have to The enemy is defeated and God has sent his king and his king has died on the cross and he has sent his spirit to indwell those who trust in him holding out for a land that's coming. See, we're holding out for a new land. And as we hold out for the new land of eternity, God has sent His Spirit to indwell us so that we can stay in the battle. We can choose to live in the life that some assembly required, and we can take next steps of faith in the midst of circumstances that are oftentimes extremely challenging and oftentimes seasoned with the reality that we are not yet tasting all of the promises of God fulfilled. And we have an enemy. Me that's trying to distract us and keep us from taking a next step of faith and God is saying you can still do it because I've sent my spirit to you and you're indwelled by my Holy Spirit you can follow me, you can trust me you can find me, I'm with you a couple summers ago we went by the Hoover Dam we were driving along there we stopped, got out and saw the thing I shared this with in the first service and the lady came up and said my dad in the Great Depression worked on the Hoover Dam Said they're on their way from Texas on vacation. They went by Hoover Dam on the way home. They ran out of money about the Hoover Dam. They were like, hey, let's just get a job. And so they stopped and they started working on the Hoover Dam and stayed there for some time. It's an amazing story. She told how her dad, his hands were used in the Great Depression to put together one of the modern engineering marvels of the world, Hoover Dam. It's, It's holding back the Colorado River at Lake Mead. It's an amazing structure, over 700 feet tall, over two football fields in depth as it holds back that amazing power that's held up there in the Colorado River. It has an electric generator in there. It generates electricity powering hundreds of thousands of homes. It's harnessing this power of a river. And it's putting it out in measured quantities to bring fuel to people's daily life. Do you know who your God is? He is the God of immeasurable power who has sent His Holy Spirit to you to act as a Hoover Dam in your life, releasing measured power just the time and the way you need it to have the fuel to do your very next step of faith. You can do it. The Lord does not want you to miss that He has dispensed heaven to you in the form of His Holy Spirit so you might walk in the power of God. You can't afford to drift, and you don't have to. So I want to encourage you to do a couple things. Number one, I want to encourage you to find a Joshua or a Caleb in your life. You need somebody in your life who will remind you of the Valley of Acre. You need somebody in your life that cares enough about you to say to you, if you keep making these choices, God's promises of discipline and judgment will come on your life. Please take your very next step of faith. You need somebody in your life like a Joshua and Caleb who can say to you, I waited 40 years to taste of God's promises. And when I tasted what he had for me, I can tell you right now it was worth the wait. You need somebody like a Joshua and Caleb in your life reminding you to follow Christ. Number two, be a Joshua or a Caleb for somebody else. I cannot tell you of any more significant deterrent from the drift away from the Lord that is characterized by selfishness and greed than giving your life away selflessly, generously as a servant leader of someone who otherwise would be like a family who had no way to experience an inheritance. Those kind of people around us every day, there's no way they're going to find the inheritance unless we believe God's promises are for everybody. And we decide to be a Joshua and Caleb in their life. Whatever you do this morning, make sure in this moment you decide your next step of faith. You can do it. And if we all will take that very next step of faith today, you know what none of us in here will be doing? If we all take the very next step of faith, no one will be drifting. And our world needs to see a church that's not drifting.